Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. For those of you who have not met me, my name is James, and I am one of the pastors here. And if we've not met yet, I would love to meet you afterwards. It's such an honor that you would come uh, to worship with us this morning. And today, if you have your book, uh, your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Ruth as we are returning to the big picture series that we started earlier this week. Our goal is to go through all 66 books of the Bible, giving uh, oversight uh, messages, giving the, the big picture of each book. And today, we've come to the book of Ruth. Now, what's interesting about the book of Ruth is that it, it is only about 85 verses. And so it doesn't take long to read through this book. We're not going to be able to, to do that this morning. Um, I encourage you to do that this week. If you've never read through the book, even if you have, it probably takes you about 10 to 15 minutes to get through the entire book. And if, you've, if you know anything about the book of Ruth, you know that it is one of the most beloved books of the Bible for at least two reasons. And number one is that if you are a hopeless romantic... Do we got any of those in here? I, I actually am, I was until I got married. But uh, um, if you like romance dramas, and, and I'm not talking about Hallmarks, okay? Those do not count as a true romance drama. But I'm talking about like Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. If you like those fictional dramas, you're going to love this true life account. Of Ruth. It's, it's the Cinderella story of the Old Testament, which chronicles the loyal love of Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi. We're going to see them in just a second. And the noble, redeeming love of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, his love for Ruth, the Moabite. In the book of Ruth, um, the book of Ruth also moves the providential love story of the entire Bible forward as it points us to Jesus, who proves to be the ultimate kinsman redeemer. We're going to look at what a kinsman redeemer is in a little bit and how Jesus is actually the ultimate kinsman, kinsman redeemer. So the second reason why people love the book of Ruth and why it's cherished is because it, it also highlights the providence of God. It's seen all throughout this book. It's woven all throughout this narrative. And to give you a definition of the providence of God, this is how God works supernaturally, through natural means, to achieve his purposes. And although the characters in Ruth, uh, the characters that we're going to see here in the book of Ruth, often speak about the Lord, it's interesting to note that the author never directly makes reference to him. And yet, we're going to see that the Lord is going to take ordinary events, and he's going to take real decisions of people, both good and bad decisions, and he's going to arrange them, in such a way to bring about his perfect will. This book should bring you hope as you realize that God has a plan, a redemptive plan that he is going to see through. And the bottom line is, is that, that you need to see is that God is always working behind the scenes of our lives to bring about his redemptive plan. So we're going to jump right into the book. If you're taking notes, there's three gospel truths I want you to see here. And the first one is this. And you can, if you've got a, a weekly, you can fill in the blanks on the back. 
The first gospel truth that I want us to see this morning is that we are all life interpreters. We are all life interpreters. In other words, we are always interpreting the circumstances around us in our lives. So let's just pick up with verse 1 in chapter 1. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, one thing, if you'll bear with me for just a second here, um, I'm one of those uh, guys that's visual in my head, and I, I see movies in my head all the time. And I want to just give you the, chapter one has a certain, if I was able to write the film score for behind it, it has a certain uh, sound I want you to hear, uh, minor chords. It, it would sound something like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That is the sound that you should hear and, and the feeling that you should have in your heart when you are reading this. Because this, this book is set in a dark period of Israel's history. It's, it's back in the time of the judges. That's what it says. If you remember that, the last book that we looked at was Rudges, was Rudges, was, was Budges, was Judges. Okay, Samson, Gideon. I'm just getting warmed up, guys. So uh, Samson, Deborah, those judges. And the last verse of Judges read, reads this, in those days, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. It's, it's, they're not living their lives according to the Lord. They are doing what is right in their eyes. And we said back then, uh, when we were going through the book of Judges, we were like, that's what it's like living in our day today, isn't it? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, in their heart, what it what, what they think's best, and what feels good. So that's the, that's the overall feeling or theme we should have here in chapter 1. So let's pick back up. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they leave Israel, they go to Moab. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. By the way, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I was told that Oprah's mom was naming her after this, but she just misspelled it. But I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, don't write that down. But the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Now, we don't know if, if they lived in the land for 10 years after um, the husband died, or if when Elimelech died, or if it was the entire time. But uh, it was 10 years, and both... Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is a dark time, isn't it? 
And we read here that there was a famine in the land of Israel, which makes sense because God had warned his people in Leviticus uh, and as they entered into the promised land that if they turned away from him and they served other gods, that God would discipline them by removing his blessing. He would withhold his blessings from them. And so as the children of, of Israel are in rebellion, there's a famine in the land. And then Elimelech does something. He interprets the situation and he does what is right in his own eyes instead of what he should have done. And he believed that it would be better to leave Israel and live in a foreign land in order to provide for his family physically, to provide for his physical needs. So it, it appears that he has prioritized the physical over the spiritual. He's isolated himself and his family from the people of God. And, you know, we were created by God. This is something that we teach hopefully regularly here at the church. I hope you've heard this, but that we were created not to live in isolation, but rather in community with God's people. And that, that's why we're always talking about how healthy sheep, healthy sheep cultivate healthy connections and relationships with other sheep. And Elimelech, who was the head of his house, he was called to lead his family. He leads them, but he, he makes a poor decision and he separates his family from the flock. Notice that it says that he went to sojourn in the country. He went to sojourn. That, that word there, sojourn, is kind of like visit. He, he wasn't there. He didn't, it doesn't seem like he made plans to stay there long. But it's funny how that happens, isn't it? That we don't make plans to be in a certain place as long as we often are. And tragedy strikes in this situation. He dies, and his two sons die. We don't know why they died, but we do know that he leaves Naomi and his two daughter-in-laws in an extremely vulnerable position as women and widows. And so without her husband and living in a foreign land and being separated from God's people, Naomi knows that she as a woman is not going to be able to survive in her current situation. So let's look at verse 6, what she does. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And because of the uncertainty of her situation, she comes to her, her daughter-in-law and, say, and says, um, listen, you guys go back to your families. You are Moabite women, and she's, she, she knows that she can't even take care of herself. She's not going to be able to take care of them. If they come to Israel, there's a, a great possibility that they would be um, not welcomed. They could be sexually harassed by uh, certain men in Israel because they are foreigners. They are enemies to them. And so Naomi seeks to persuade them to go back to their families. But verse 14 says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth hung, clung to her. In other words, Orpah said, okay, I'm going back to my former life. And Orpah said, I mean, and Ruth clings to her. That word clung to her is the same word that's found in Genesis 24 when it says that a, a man shall cling to his wife. It means to stick to. It means to be welded together. Verse 15, it says, and Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
Return after your sister-in-law. And I love Ruth's response. She says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then, then comes one of the most famous quotes in the Bible. This is often quoted during wedding ceremonies. She says, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. For your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord, and then she calls like a curse upon herself in in one sense. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I love these words. I love the um, resolve that she has. These are are the words um, also that should express a heart that has been transformed by Jesus, shouldn't it? This is what our heart should be like towards Jesus. Somehow, somehow, through Naomi and her family, somehow she has come to know the God of Israel. And she's basically saying this, I can't go back to the life that I once lived. I can't go back to those false gods. I've seen the true and living God. I want to serve God. I want the, the one true God of Israel. I'm not going back to my formal former life. And you know, that's the spirit. That's the resolve that, that we need to have as disciples of Jesus. That, that desire, I want to know him, and I want to make him known. Let's set our faces like flint to, to know Jesus and to make him known. Now, in her suffering and in her pain, I mean, imagine, I, I've tried to put myself in Naomi's place uh, to, to lose my spouse, and if I lost my children, it would be extremely painful. I, it would be overwhelming. So I'm not, I don't want to make light of what she is going through right now. Um, this is something that uh, people have gone through, and it, it is, it is uh, she would be, just be bleeding. Um, but there's something that she doesn't understand in this moment, and that is that God has put Ruth in her, in her life. God has a plan for Ruth in her life, and and she's attempting to send her away, to send a blessing away. But, but God is always at work, even when we're blind. And in verse 18, it says, And when Naomi saw that, that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Now, we don't know why they say this. We don't know if, if it's because they thought they were never coming back. It had been so long. Or maybe it doesn't quite look like Naomi, but there's, because of all the hardship she's gone through, it still looks like her. We don't know exactly what's going on here, but we know that they are taking, taken by surprise. And look what Naomi says in verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, the, the name Naomi means pleasant, delightful, and sweet. And Ruth's, um, Naomi's like, don't call me sweet. 
call me bitter. And she's, she's clear, clearly interpreting her hardships and concluded that God is against her. And her jaded interp- interpretation has led her into bitterness. And it appears to have just spread throughout her entire being and, and taken over. And as we all know, as we all know, if you take a bit of bitter butter and put it in a big bowl of batter, the bitter butter will make the big bowl of batter bitter. Right? We all know that. Bitterness is dangerous. It is destructive, and it is contagious, isn't it? That's why Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it. See to it that no bitter, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it some become defiled. Bitterness within a family or within a friendship or within a congregation can defile the entire group. And and so we need to be on guard against bitterness. Bitterness is this lens that if you have it on, everything in life, relationships, and even God becomes bitter in the way that you see things. And and if you're bitter this morning, um, I suspect that it is uh, directly related to how you're interpreting God's providential activity in your life. And so I want to give, underneath the the heading of we are all life interpreters, I want to give you three words of advice as your interpreter. Number one, interpreting. Number one, don't interpret in biased isolation. Don't interpret in biased isolation. I've done this and I've seen people do this where you get up, you pull back, and you get people around you that will tell you what you want to hear. They're biased, and they just confirm what you're saying, even though they may not have all the information. That, that happens on social media all the time. Being, people being affirmed when they should be saying, no, no, don't, you're going the wrong way. People are being affirmed and given biased, biased um, uh, information. We need to get godly counsel. Again, that's why it's important to be within a godly fellowship with people who are able to see your situation, they're outside of it in one sense, but inside it with you because they love you, and they're willing to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Secondly, be careful that you don't draw conclusions when you're weary and the data is unclear. Oh, it's so easy to do that, isn't it? And we're weary a lot of times, aren't we? And we're isolated a lot of times. We can isolate ourselves, and we can begin to bring uh, to interpret things in a way that isn't accurate. We can fill in the blanks. We can begin to write stories about why that person didn't talk to you at church on Sunday. It's something you did. Oh, that's what I did. Oh, I don't know why they're so mad about that. Whatever the situation is, you start writing stories instead of going to them, saying, hey, I don't want to make an assumption about what I'm feeling right here, so I just want to ask you, is there anything between us? That would be one way to, to not interpret things with, um, or draw conclusions when the data is unclear. The third thing I want to encourage us is this, is that as you're interpreting, remember that God is good. Remember that he is sovereign. That means he's in control. He's reigning. He's almighty. Nothing's happening to you that he has not allowed to filter through himself 
and he is actively engaged. Listen, our feelings lie to us. When we interpret through our feelings, they lie to us so many times. They tell us things about God that are not true. And it can lead to bitterness. And when you get into that place of bitterness, it is a, it is a difficult place to get out of. So these are things I just want to encourage us to take to heart as we are, as we are interpreting our circumstances, our life around us. The last one especially is that God is good. That God is good. He can do anything. He's sovereign. He's almighty. He's all-knowing. He's wiser than me, infinitely, and he's actively engaged, even when it doesn't feel like it. And it appears that Naomi has forgotten this. She's, she's been isolated from the people of God, and maybe that's part of the reason. Um, but her, her dreams... Um, her plans, which were good plans, to have a husband, to have her sons, and to have daughter-in-laws, and, and to have grandchildren, they have been, their dreams have been, her dreams have been dashed to pieces, and it's caused her to be bitter. And, and she believes that God is against her. He thinks that she's not going according to God's word, because God has spoken in Deuteronomy 10, 17, speaking of widows, it says, the Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless and widows, and he loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Now, take notice of that last line there. He loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Take note of that when we look at Boaz. But Naomi has just forgotten that God is for the widow and that he is always working behind the scenes even in in the most dark and hopeless situations. And, if you're taking notes, this is our second gospel truth, truth, and God's plans are infinitely superior to ours. Sometimes that's difficult to see, isn't it? When we're suffering, when we're having conflict with one another. When you're in the middle of it, it is hard to see that God's got a plan or that God is there. That's why we often take things into our own hands because we're like, if, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And this is where we need to learn to exercise our faith in remembering what God has revealed to us in his word. And, and if we're, we have eyes to see, we're going to see that God's providential finger Prints are everywhere in our lives. All right, let's go to chapter 2. Naomi has returned, and it says, verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, Boaz means in him is strength. And, and I love that little phrase there that says, he was a worthy man. A, what does that mean? How many worthy men, I want you to think about this, how many worthy men do you know personally? I want you to just think about that. What is a worthy man? Well, that word, that word, that word worthy means manly. It also means hero. It means champion. We're going to see here that Boaz is a man. He, he is a man of steel, but he's covered in soft velvet. He's a man of steel that's covered 
in soft development. That was a saying that came back, that, that came out in the 70s. I remember being told by my dad, you need to be a man of steel uh, covered with velvet. And Boaz possesses certain characteristics of a godly man. And uh, this Friday, I think about uh, 75% of our men gathered in, in my home uh, to, to get together and to answer a question that is, what is a man? What is a man and how has God given men the gift of godly masculinity and how are we to use that and to develop it and to exercise it to positively influence our families, our churches, and societies? And listen, for those of, those, those of you men who were unable to attend, um, I want to say to you what I said to the men on Friday night, and that is that we need you. We need you, gentlemen. We need you to be present. We need you to be actively growing in your faith as godly influences and to reveal who Jesus truly is by the way that we passionately sacrifice, sacrifice our lives as, as men. And as we make our way through chapter 2, I want us to take note of, note of a couple of things. Number one, I want us to look at the providential care of God. Notice God. His character is going to come out in this passage as we look at Boaz and the way he treats uh, Ruth and, and the people around him. Secondly, I want you to look at the character of Boaz, a godly man who is ultimately points us to Jesus. Okay, So as we go through chapter 2, I want you to, to pay attention to those two tracks. Verse 2 says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now, as I've already said, as I've already noted, God has a heart for widows, he has a heart for orphans, and he has a heart for those who are marginalized. And in the Mosaic law, specifically in Leviticus, God commanded his people that when you go to, when it comes time to harvest your fields, make sure that you don't gather everything out of the fields. Leave the edges, the corners of the fields, for those who are poor and widows and who, who can work, but they don't have a, a, a job. He also said, you know, when, you're, when you are harvesting the grapes, don't pick every single grape off of, of the vine. Leave some on that. And if they fall on the ground, don't pick them up. Leave them there for the poor. And, and this was God's welfare system in Israel. And it wasn't a handout. It was a hand up. Um, giving handouts... Giving to those who can work does two, two things that are negative. Number one, it's, it cripples people that should be, that could work, that won't work. And it, secondly, it strips them of their dignity. It strips them of their dignity. When you give somebody something and allow them not to work, you are stripping them of their dignity. And parents, that's why we need to teach our, our children to work. And if you have the ability to give them everything, you shouldn't do that. Um, in my house, now, let me just say this. God has also given you wisdom on knowing how to raise your kids. So I'm going to share something about what, how it's in my house, but I'm not saying that's how it has to be in your house. But in my house, our children are not paid to cook, to do laundry, to put up dishes, and to mow the lawn. Let me take that back. They are paid. Well, sometimes my children say, hey, will you pay me to do this? I say, 
if you'll start paying rent for the bed that you're sleeping in, right? If you'll start paying for the food that, that we're putting on the table. And the point that I'm getting at, I'm not trying to be like this tough dad. I'm trying to teach our children responsibility and the dignity that comes behind when you work, when you do things, when you are a responsible member of a family. And, and the point that I'm getting at is that God created us to work. And so we want to make sure that when we are helping people, that we're helping them and not crippling them or stripping them of their dignity. And that's why, that's why we partner with Transformation Village. I love the way that Transformation Village does this because we are able to assist um, single moms and children. But the way that they do it is they don't just bring the mothers and children in and just provide everything for them and just say, stay here. What they do is they interview each one of them and they look at their specific situation and find out where they're at and then they make a plan to help them to get back on their feet so that they can go out and live productive lives. I love being a part of the way that, that they help people. They, give, they, are, they are an example of what it looks like to be a hand up, to help somebody to get forward and to move forward. And Ruth is a, a woman of dignity. And so it says that she goes out. Verse 3, it says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And look at this. It says, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. Now that means that he's related to Naomi. And apparent accidents, this looks like an accident, but apparent accidents are God-filtered appointments. And, and this is God's providence at work. It's no accident that Ruth is in Boaz's field. Let's look at, at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now there's four things I want us to see here about Boaz as we go through here. And ladies, if you're looking for a godly man, uh, if you not, don't have a, a husband yet, or uh, ladies, if you have a man and you want him to, to grow in godliness, I want to encourage you to pray for him and encourage him. But, and gentlemen, this is an example of how we should be. But number one, I want you to notice that Boaz has a job. Boaz has a job. Number two, I want you to notice that he can manage and lead himself. Number three, he is openly public about his God. And number four, he's relational. He's relational. Those are four well, great traits of a godly man. In verse five, it says, Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Can you hear the music? <laughs> Whose young woman is this? Ruth, before I met you, I was ruthless. Okay, the music's changing. The romance is beginning. He's taking notice of her. And the servant fills him in on the situation with Naomi. And then Boaz said to Ruth, 
in verse 8. Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged, look at this, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Gentlemen, this is, again, an example of a godly man, and it is the heart of Jesus on display. Boaz, a worthy man, he is kind, and he is concerned for the weak and is a protector of the women. Notice he says, have I not told them not to touch you? And instead of taking advantage of her, he includes her in the fellowship of other women, other women. He doesn't isolate her to himself. He says, stay with the women. Women, that could be something that we can take away from that is you need other women around you. You need women to speak into your lives, women to uh, help you to grow as godly women. But he basically tells her, I will protect you from other men. And he tells the men, if you touch her, you're dealing with me. And as I shared with the men on Friday, um, we are called, gentlemen, we are called to realize the influence that we have as men and to engage. And one of the things that we talked about on Fridays is that godly men use their masculinity to be aggressive protectors, aggressive protectors of women and children. And we're not going to back down from that, gentlemen, are we? Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Boaz is an example of a godly man. And he's he's an example of Jesus, right? Because Jesus is our protector. Jesus protects his people. And this is a beautiful picture here. And it's not just with Boaz, but it's also with Ruth. It's because, and because Ruth gets it. I want you to look at verse 10. It says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? See what she's she's saying here? Being a Moabite, she realizes that she's an outsider, and yet Boaz has welcomed her into the family. He's brought her in. Isn't that a picture of Jesus with us? We were outsiders apart from the family, and he brings us in to his family. Verse 14 says, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not Rebuke her. You see what he's doing? Boaz, Boaz is going above and beyond what even the law required. And again, this is a picture of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus has not treated us according to what we deserve. He has, with abundant kindness and generosity and dignity, cared for us. And so at the end of the day, Ruth returns home with about 30 pounds of grain. And 
I can imagine her talking to Naomi, and she sort of casually says, yeah, I was, was in the field of this guy named Boaz. Now, look at verse 20. It says, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now this is, uh, redeemer is also known as the kinsman redeemer. And for the first time in this narrative, in a long time, Naomi realizes that there is hope. Why? Because she realizes there is a redeemer. And one of the things in Israel is that if a husband died and didn't have sons, then what, what the law required was that a near relative would marry the widow in order to provide for her and to keep the inheritance within the family and to raise up descendants for the, for the deceased husband so that his name would not be blotted out from, from Israel. And in chapter 3, we're not going to be able to get to this this morning, so I'm just going to summarize it. But in chapter 3, Naomi instructs Ruth to ask Boaz to redeem her. Ladies, in other words, she asks Boaz to marry her. And um, in order for a kinsman redeemer to be a kinsman redeemer, he had to meet certain qualifications. There's three that he had to meet. Number one, he had to be related. Number two, he had to be wealthy enough to pay the price of redemption. And number three, he had to be willing. And if you, have, if you, if you read this uh, account, you're going to see, and I wish we had time to do this, but if you read this account, you'll see that Boaz was not the closest relative to her. And so he didn't have to redeem her. He was not required to redeem her. And so the question, Jude, we need to ask is, did he? Did Boaz redeem her? Well, if you've never read the book of Ruth, I'm not going to give you the entire details. It's worth reading, I promise you that. Other than to say, and this is our third gospel and final gospel truth, is that God's plan of redemption prevails. You'll see this in chapter 3 and 4 of the book of Ruth. And if you'll remember, the book of Ruth begins by reminding us that there is no king in Israel. But here's how it ends. Verse 13 of chapter 4, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Now look at this. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king. The king is coming, is how the book of Ruth closes. Hope for Israel. God's plan of redemption is going to prevail. God's king is coming. 
by God's grace, next week in first, second, first and Second Samuel, we're going to see this begin to happen with the with David becoming king. And what I want us to close here and see is that Ruth, Ruth is a picture of who can be saved. Ruth is a picture of us. She represents us. She was an outsider according to her ethnicity, just as we were, as I mentioned earlier. We were outsiders. But God accepted her. Why? Because she believed. Because she put her faith in him. And because she believed, God used her mightily. And if you read the first chapter of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, you will find Ruth's name in that genealogy. And so when we look at Boaz, we look through Boaz to see Jesus, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, because he meets, Jesus meets all three requirements. He's related to us, isn't he? How? He took on flesh. He became a man. He left heaven. He took on humanity. So he's related to us. And through his blood, he was able to pay our price of redemption. And though he wasn't obligated to die for us, he was willing. And he did. And so this morning, if you are in a place of of bitterness, if you are in a place uh, like Naomi where you uh, don't believe that God is for you, I want to tell you something. There is a Redeemer. His name is Jesus, and he will accept anyone who will come to him. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you've never come to Jesus, to come to him. This morning, maybe you have come to Jesus, and you have forgotten that God loves you. I want to encourage you to come to Jesus this morning, too. And remember that God is always working behind the scenes. He's always working in our lives to bring about his redemptive plan.